Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke, where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. So this requirement, though, when you look at this, in particular, this requirement was all about living a life that is separated from sin. You know, why do I say that? Well, because death was the result of sin. Now, people didn't die because they committed a sin. But death itself is the result of sin. We know that from the garden. Man began to die after Adam and Eve fell into sin in the garden. Death was introduced into the world. And and death was the result of sin. And therefore, refraining from contact with the dead was symbolic of refraining from contact with sin. That was the whole picture that was being painted in this vow. And it also vividly portrays the result of coming in contact with sin, even inadvertently, that there is a cost to be paid, a cleansing and a sacrifice that's required. It teaches that a price must be paid. I hope you see the the beautiful picture that this Nazarite vow paints for, for us. Now, all of this does raise a good question, though. Since Paul is the only person we find in the New Testament who who takes this kind of vow, other than John the Baptist, which I already mentioned, John the Baptist is really an old covenant saint. He's in that transition between the two. But Paul, being the fully new covenant saint, you know, the, the fully new covenant believer, he enters into it twice. It's not a lifetime vow, but he enters into it one time, the first time Acts 18 describes, where where he enters into it upon departing from Corinth and heading to Central. Shria, and the second time when he's in Jerusalem, which Acts 21 covers, you, know, you can read those on your own. But the question becomes, are such vows appropriate today? Uh, what's the relevance of this vow to those of us who are under the new covenant? Well, first of all, it is, it is important to realize that there is no indication that Paul's motives in either accounts for taking this vow was the result of any form of biblical obligation to the law, any kind of biblical mandate he felt compelled to keep, but simply a desire to honor Jewish custom, and more importantly, to establish his witness with his Jewish kinsmen in order to not hinder the sharing of the gospel with them. He was living the very idea that he expresses in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 22. Here's what he writes, 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. I love that passage. I understand that passage fully, to be honest with you. Um, when I was in the army, 
as an enlisted member out of high school, uh, I was a chaplain's assistant. No, not a chaplain, a chaplain's assistant, which meant that I was the clerk, typist, and bodyguard for the chaplains. And one of the chaplains I served was a rabbi. And uh, I was his assistant for a period of time. And you know what? When I went into to, to their services to do anything to help, I, I followed their traditions. I put on the amica. I went in and I did that so as not to insult them. And, and really, it wasn't required of me me to do that, but I chose to do that because I was a Christian and I, a fairly new Christian, to be honest with you, and I wanted to have a witness with them. And the best way I could have a witness to them was not to insult them and to insult him and his, and his followers. And so I did the best that I could to be a witness to them. So I understand clearly what Paul's saying here. And that's exactly what Paul did. So it's important for us to not look to Paul as an example of following a ritual of the old Testament law and now being required to follow that today. You can't draw that parallel because it doesn't exist. Paul took it for a very specific reason, for a very specific purpose that had nothing to do with a particular mandate of the law for him to do so. But it is also important to understand that the Nazarite vow was a vow of dedication and setting apart. And in this regard, it is most certainly okay for Christians to dedicate and set themselves apart in worship of the Lord in ways that, that exceed what God asks of us as New Testament believers, so long as we do it with the right heart and in the right spirit. And what I mean by that is that we're not placing focus on the ritual and start thinking that through the ritual, it somehow makes us more spiritual or we enter into it legalistically or we devise and enter into all sorts of unscriptural rituals and practices as a part of it. That's not okay. That's not right heart. That's not right practice. That's unscriptural. We always need to remember that the New Testament Scripture only records two such vows like this, recorded in only one man's life. And in both cases, there is no contextual basis for assuming these examples to be an illustration of a spiritual discipline or a spiritual requirement that God is placing upon us. If you want to engage in a special vow of some sort to the Lord, there's no prohibition but do it only because you want to make a special offering to him or because you sense that he is asking you to make such a special sacrifice in your life. Never do it because of some misguided understanding of the scriptures or self-effort to make yourself feel more spiritual or worthy to the Lord. And if you enter into a special vow, keep it simple and keep it biblical. Entering into it just as you would a fast, which, by the way, is a form of a vow, isn't it? When we fast from food, it is a form of a vow. But do it with the simplicity that comes with that, not to draw attention to yourself, not to make yourself more spiritual in your own eyes, in anyone else's eyes, in the Lord's eyes, because it doesn't. It's about your worship of the Lord, and it needs to remain at that. And also, I would tell you, if you choose to enter into a vow like this, keep in mind the things the Lord says about making vows and promises. Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 through 23 says this. Deuteronomy 23, beginning in verse 21, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. In other words, if you make the vow, keep it. If you don't make the vow, it's okay. You don't have to. That, he says in verse 23, that which has gone from your lips you shall keep and perform, for you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised 
with your mouth. Hmm. It's pretty clear. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 1 through verse 7. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God, and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they do evil. They do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God, for God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Mm. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say anything, I'm sorry, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there is also vanity, but fear God. And finally, I'm reminded of what Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 33 through, through verse 37. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, again, You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is, it is God's throne, nor the, by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. I think that sums it up well, doesn't it? If you're going to say yes, then let it be yes. Follow through. If it's going to be no, well, there's no sin in no, but let it be no. As it said, you know, in that first in Deuteronomy, you know, what's gone from your lips, the Lord's going to hold you accountable to. And so if you're going to say, I'm going to do this for the Lord, I'm going to fast for him, I'm going to do whatever for the Lord, then do it. Then do it, but honor it, but honor it. But even if we never enter into such a formal vow of any sort, there are some important things I think we can learn from the Nazarite vow for our lives in Christ. There are three things that the Nazarite vow reflects that, that I think can help us live a more dedicated life to the Lord. First one, refrain from anything that impairs clarity of mind or dulls your spiritual senses. Let me say that again. Refrain from anything that impacts clarity of mind or dulls your spiritual senses. Now, Immediately what comes to mind is alcohol, right? It does. But it doesn't only pertain to something like alcohol. It can, it can pertain to anything that has a dulling effect upon your spiritual senses. You know, I, I generally, I'll be honest with you, and those who've attended here for years have heard me say this before, uh, I generally refrain from taking medication of any sort when I know I'm going to be standing in the pulpit. I, I'm not against medications. I'm not saying medications are wrong by any means. I'm just saying, especially when I'm standing in the pulpit, I want to hear what the Lord's saying. I don't want to be taking anything that will dull my senses. You know, I remember a, a while back, I had a doctor that had issued prednisone to me because I had some issues with my lungs. He gave me prednisone and it was a Wednesday night when we were still in our old building and I was sitting there and I noticed everybody was staring at me in the middle of the teaching and it was because I was doing this at my head constantly, constantly doing this. And I realized what was happening and it felt like I had bugs running through my hair constantly. It was the prednisone that was doing that. And I immediately got off and got finished teaching and I went to my doctor and I said, I can't do this. You got to get me off this. I don't want to take this anymore. It was too distracting, not only for the people, but it was distracting for me because instead of listening for the Lord's voice, I was doing this with my head, you know? 
Does that mean it's wrong for somebody to take prednisone? Absolutely not. That's between you and your physician. I'm not, this is not an anti-medication message, but it is to say, be careful of the things that we, we allow in our lives that can distract and can dull our spiritual senses. And that does lead back to a discussion. What about alcohol? I mean, what about alcohol? After all, you know what? There's no specific prohibition against the use of alcohol found in the Bible. Just warnings against excess, right? Everybody would say that. Warning is against drunkenness. Absolutely. And that is true. And yet we'd also do well to remember Paul's words because I believe they most certainly pertain to this very issue. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12. All things are lawful for me. But all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Let me challenge you a little bit this morning. No matter how little alcohol we consume, there is a power that it exerts over us. That is a reality. Consider what medical experts tell us. Impairment of performance begins at below 0.02% of blood alcohol content level. That, that's the equivalent of one to one and a half drinks can result in that level and impair performance. At low doses, the effects of alcohol may include alterations in mood, cognition, anxiety level, and motor performance. It may also impair performance several hours after the blood alcohol level has gone down. Even slightly elevated levels result in more fatal accidents, and the majority of individuals who experience a problem related to alcohol use, use are light and moderate drinkers. <clears throat> One to two drinks of alcohol impair mental and physical abilities. Mental processes such as restraint, awareness, concentration, and judgment are affected. Reaction time slowed and an inability to perform complicated tasks. One or two drinks. Even one beer or the equivalent of a beer's level of alcohol can slow your reaction and confuse your thinking. This means anything that requires concentration and coordination like driving is more dangerous when you've had even a single drink. Any blood alcohol level, even a blood alcohol content of 0.02%, the result of just one drink increases the risk of a crash, and alcohol impairs nearly every aspect of the brain's ability to process information, as well as the eye's ability to focus and react to light. Now, besides those physiological effects, think about the negative effects that alcohol has in our world today. There are more than 100,000 U.S. deaths each year caused by excessive alcohol consumption. Direct and indirect causes of death, including drunk driving, cirrhosis of the liver, um, falls, cancer, and stroke. At any given time, 25 to 40 percent of all hospital beds in America, except probably during the COVID periods, are occupied by people with alcohol-related issues and illnesses or spinoffs from it. Wow. 50% of all traffic-related accidents are related to alcohol. There are approximately 65 alcohol-related motor vehicle crashes per day, killing someone every 31 minutes and non-fatally injuring someone every two minutes. 20% of all freezing deaths, 25% of all choking deaths, 50% of all falling deaths are related to the use of alcohol. 52% of those injured in a fire are related to alcohol. 
60% of all suicides, 83% of all murders, 69% of all drowning deaths, and up to 50% of all teen driving deaths are alcohol-related. In the last 50 years alone, more people have died from alcohol-related issues than those who died as a result of World War I and World War II combined. As one person said it, alcohol use is the most destructive force in America next to abortion. 73% of all felonies, 73% of all child-beating cases, 41% of all rape cases, 81% of wife-battering cases, 72% of stabbings are alcohol-related. Alcohol use and abuse has been estimated to cost American industries up to $68 billion per year with absenteeism estimated to be four to eight times greater among alcoholics and alcohol abusers. In the workplace, one in five employees have reported injuries or exposure to dangerous conditions because of a co-worker's drinking or have had to go beyond their regular work responsibilities to compensate for an employee who is alcohol impaired. The economic costs of alcohol abuse in the U.S. as a whole are estimated to be approximately $185 billion annually. And I'd like you to note that the cost of treating alcoholism and alcohol-related medical issues cost us more than treating cancer. So you tell me, is the consumption of alcohol helpful? Does it edify? And, and, and even though many point to the Bible and say, well, the Bible doesn't condemn it. Yes, it doesn't. Let's consider, let's just consider that, though, for a moment. First of all, it is true, the Bible does not condemn it. Yet, the Bible does give us an awful lot of warnings about it, and, and some examples of the negative effects it had on the lives of God's people. Here are just a few to consider. Genesis 9. You can read the account today, but Genesis 9 gives us the account of Noah. Right after the sin was purged from the earth through the flood, Noah starts growing vineyards and ends up making wine and getting drunk. His sons see him uncovered, and the cycle of sin and destruction begins all over again. Genesis chapter 19 gives an account of Lot, when after escaping the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, his daughters got him drunk in order to have incestuous relations with him, in order to take matters into their own hands to create a lineage for themselves, with Lot being the drunken participant to their fleshy scheme. Leviticus chapter 10 gives us the story of Nadab and Abihu, the priestly sons of Aaron, who were consumed by God for offering, as the scripture describes, strange fire, which the following passage in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 8 through 11, seems to make clear was the result of alcohol consumption. Because from that point on, the priests are commanded not to do it when they're going in. Now, secondly, the Bible specifically prohibits some of it uh, from some from using it completely. Leviticus, as I mentioned, chapter 9, verses 10, 9 through 11. Leviticus, I'm sorry, Leviticus 10, verses 9 through 11. It's forbidden for the priests. In number 6, 1 through 4, it's forbidden for those entering into a Nazarite vow, as we're studying here. In Proverbs chapter 31, verses 1 through 7, it's forbidden for civil leaders. In Isaiah chapter 28, verses 7 through 8, prophets are warned against it because, as it says there, it will cause them to err. How would it cause them to err? By impairing their spiritual senses, that clarity to hear the Lord speaking to them. As we think about the priests and the leaders and the prophets, I think we do well to remember what John says about us as believers of the new covenant. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, it says this, 
Revelation 1, verse 4, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I understand that the examples I gave to you are Old Testament examples, but yet when we look at those examples of priests and kings and leaders, here we're told in the New Testament that that's what we are spiritually. It's what Christ has called us to. So look, my point in this this morning is not to guilt you out over alcohol use or to definitively say to you that the Bible prohibits you from consuming a drink. I'm not saying that to you. But I do want to challenge you to consider whether this is something that is really something that's appropriate for your life any longer as a believer. How how does it spiritually help and edify your life? What's it doing to advance the kingdom of God in, in this world as, and, and the, king, the cause of the gospel in your life? How, how does it add anything to your life as a child of God when it does nothing but dulls your spiritual senses? And is at the heart of so many destructive things in our world today? As for me, you know, I decided a long time ago to let alcohol go. It wasn't I felt guilty drinking in moderation because I didn't. It's that I knew it was something that that didn't do anything for me in a spiritual sense any longer. In fact, I knew how it detracted from my witness and my ability to hear the Lord's voice very clearly. And I'm talking about before I was a pastor. I also knew that the Lord was asking me to let it go. And really, that was the most important point. I had been challenged by others and I'd been listening to it. And yeah, I grew up in churches where it was absolutely condemned. Look, I haven't done that with you this morning. I'm just challenging you to think about this and pray about this and hear and look at the heart of the Lord behind the scriptures and what it's saying to you as a believer. And you know, when I began to do that, I began to hear the Lord more clearly saying to me, this is not for you. Put away childish things. This is not for you. And even though drinking was not a sin, I knew that refusing the Lord's will for my life was. So I let it go. And, and, and since I've done that so many years ago, I never look back. I never look back. No regrets whatsoever. None. I don't need it. But as I also said, it isn't just alcohol that I refrain from. In as much as possible, I refrain from anything that impairs my senses and ability to see and hear clearly from the Lord or that exerts some power over me. You know, I always refer to this as my one pill experience with Oxycontin, but I have a terrible back and I had a doctor that gave me Oxycontin for my back. It was so bad. It was hurting so bad. Gave it to me. I took one pill. It made me feel so good. I was so euphoric. I could have written the best sermons in the world. And that was the first warning that I wasn't hearing from the Lord with that thing in my body. And I took the rest of the bottle and I dumped it down and I got rid of it. I went back to my doctor and said, I can't take this. I can't take this. Not just because I liked it too much, but because I realized that it was the liking of this that was causing things within me to not be able to, to be able to hear and receive from the Lord. So, so you decide for yourself, but, but I personally think the word that Paul gives to us is an important word worth all of us considering. I think it really is the definitive word. It's not every little innuendo that we can pull from scripture on whether alcohol is you know, okay, or drinking's okay, or it's not okay, or this is okay, or that's not okay. I really think that what we look at and what Paul says really sums it up. Again, 1 Corinthians six twelve, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not, I will not 
I hope you can say that this morning with the, the resolute determination that we can almost hear in Paul's voice here. I will not be brought under the power of any. You decide. No guilt. You decide. Take it to the Lord. Second, how can we grow out of this, this Nazarene vow? Secondly, I would say that live in a way that identifies the commitment that you've made to Christ. You know, when you look at the Nazarite, he grew his hair. She, they grew their hair so that it, it identified the commitment that they were making to the Lord in this act of worship. Now, look, this doesn't mean that you need to let your hair grow long. But, but to simply, it, what it means is to simply set your heart on making your commitment to the Lord visible more than just words. That, 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 that your life would speak volumes to people about who you serve and who you follow. Let the way you live your life, the way you behave in life, visibly demonstrate the life of separation that you've chosen to live for Jesus. Don't be a closet Christian. Always keep in mind Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. Matthew 10, 32. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him... I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.